The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, everybody. This is Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. Today's episode revolves around an award-winning 2020 documentary, Medicating Normal, which focuses on the harmful effects of psychiatric medications. It follows the journeys of a newly married couple, a combat veteran, a waitress, and a teenager whose doctors prescribe psychiatric drugs for stress, mild depression, insomnia, and trauma. These people went on to suffer serious physical and mental side effects, as well as neurological damage from taking these medications as prescribed and severe complicated withdrawal when they attempted to stop. Drug companies spend billions of dollars promoting these drugs, extolling their virtues, while leaving out the risks of dependency, withdrawal, and neurological harm. This documentary reveals the other side of the story, the story of harm done. It is the untold story of what happens when profit-driven medicine intersects with real-life human beings in distress. I'm really excited to introduce two real-life heroes, the filmmaker and director of Medicating Normal, Lynn Cunningham, and one of the main subjects in the film, Angie Peacock. Angie Peacock is a former U.S. Army sergeant. She earned a master's in social work from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, she is part of the outreach team for the film uh, and suffers from protracted withdrawal syndrome from psychiatric medications. She is a mental health advocate, a writer, and a YouTube creator who travels across the United States in an effort to improve the mental health care system. Lynn and Angie, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Trish, for having us. Thank you. Thank My you. pleasure. So I was blown away when I saw Medicating Normal. Typically, when I watch a documentary, I find them boring and dry. And I, this one was riveting. And I found myself really rooting for the subjects of the film. You did a, an honest, raw, real job of putting a voice to so many silent victims of the overprescribing epidemic. It was just beautifully done, and I highly recommend it uh, to uh, anybody that's uh, listening today. Lynn, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you made the film, the inspiration behind it. I think I heard it had something to do with a close family member. Yes. Um, well, I set out uh, to make the I did not set out to make a film at all. I um, had as you are right, a very beloved family member who uh, in her 20s was a star athlete, a star um, scholar at one of our nation's most competitive elite colleges and did really, really well in college. And um, uh, in her early 20s uh, was given a, um, a diagnosis for um, a mental illness 
and was put on a drug. And over the course of about 10 years, uh, one drug became 10. And um, she uh, started to had to be uh, couldn't hold down a job and was put on disability. And I remember at the time, um, she called every day on the phone asking, Linny, is everything going to be okay? And we have such a tight-knit, close family, and she has uh, three wonderful siblings, all of whom would support her through anything, and we're supporting her. So um, I began to realize this question, is everything going to be okay, really didn't have to do with her material well-being. Rather, it was about you know, uh, her realizing her potential as an individual. And um, you know, to be just quite honest, it was, she was not there. She was, um, I, I hate the word zombie, but she just, it was not her and, uh, she couldn't hold down a job. And I just, I don't think, I think the medication was preventing her. We'd lost her and her bright self. Now I, I'm not saying the medication wasn't helping in some way, but, um, this, this sort of nagging question, is everything going to be okay, really started to bother me. So I thought, you know, I, I have no idea what she's doing, what's going into her body, what it's treating. Um, because as, as those 10 years had rolled by, you know, medications were added. And I, it just, some of it just didn't make sense. So that began, I read this wonderful book by Bob Whitaker um, called Anatomy of an Epidemic, which is scrupulously researched, um, backed up with, he digs into published trials, unpublished trials, and it really began to uncover a world of mental health care that I knew nothing about. And, um, you know, challenging the efficacy and the safety of, of many of these drugs. And I just, that one book led to another, led to another, and I discovered a body of, of uh, written material and um, started to, my, my filmmaking uh, partner, Wendy, and I just started, we, we started to interview people with lived experience like Angie um, all across the country and started to notice that this story, this narrative that really wasn't in any, um, it was not being told by mainstream medicine and yet it was out there. And it was somewhere along in that period of time, sort of trying to corroborate Bob Whitaker's book, that we thought this this is a story that has got to be told. And um, in the screening of it, um, through Angie and Nicole, our outreach team is amazing. In the screening of the film, this message has been again reiterated by people who come to our screenings who then again share their stories. So um, you kept hearing the same story over and kept, over and over, right? We kept hearing the same story, uh, different, I mean, different, different parts of the country, different socioeconomic groups, but we kept hearing that same story. So that led to the film. And so how uh, terrifying for you and uh, other members of your family and this uh, young woman's parents to watch. She was previously very high functioning, right? Very high functioning. And she deteriorated in her early 20s after being put on a psychiatric medication. That is very hard to 
it's, we, we've all gone back and scratched our heads. It is very hard to determine which came first, the chicken or the egg. And, right. um, but a he- very I, helpless, helpless feeling in yeah, her, and right? I, I just know that her, her, her capability and functionality decreased. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel a little bit that maybe in some ways she was more stable, but her ability to, to, uh, take part in a functioning, challenging, stressful world was gone. Um, and, you know, she'd been an, an incredible athlete, 44 and 0, and um, on, on the women's squash team. And that was gone. Her, her body, uh, the, the toll that the medication had taken on her was just visible for all of us. And the, the physical stuff that started to happen and, you know, uh, yeah, so it, 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 it I'm not, we, we did not make a film about her. We made a film called Medicating Normal. And there would be people who would argue uh, this family member did not, was not, you know, needed medication. It's a serious mental illness. Now that's up for grabs too. But what we felt is that there are so many people in the country for whom the film who have not severe mental illness, but very manageable problems, human problems that um, are then put into the category of a mental illness, and then they're medicated. That is who we ended up making the film for. And I talk about my family member because she inspired the research that, that got us to that film. Absolutely. And in fact, in Medicating Normal, one of your physicians says, we're vilifying emotional pain. And we're equating normal human sadness and anxiety with mental illness and then saying drugs are the answer. Yes. And mm-hmm. we, this is part of that pattern of uh, when Wendy and I started to interview this pattern of, of, of people who would bear their souls, who um, had found themselves all of a sudden, it's called psychiatrized. A lot of them would use that term, which means they were led to believe there was something wrong. I mean, Angie can, can talk about this, but um, it, 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 our whole society, to, to villainize any one person or, or, or doctor or anything is way too simple. Our whole mm-hmm. society began to think this way, and the advertisements that we see on television began to tell us this, that any little thing, even grieving the death of someone, um, if you grieve longer than two weeks, there's something wrong with you medically. And that's just, we don't believe that. And, and, I, and I think that's part of why we are where we are right now. How many people did you interview for the film? And what commonalities did you hear? Hundreds. And um, the commonalities, uh, I, and I, it, there are all sorts of commonalities. And they were put on different drugs and, and, and all of that. But the commonality was that one drug, one drug led to another, they did not feel right. And they would tell their doctors this, and yet nobody really believed them in, in the most, for the most part, they were not believed by their doctors or their families that there was a problem with how they were being treated. And uh, that that was crazy making. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, how has the film been received by the medical profession? I would say 
there have been some remarkable, we've had 144 community screenings and we have had incredible doctors on board. You being one um, who, uh, who corroborate, who, who uh, notice these same things in, with their own patients, with pa- patients coming to them, trying to get off of medication. And there, is, there are a lot of good people out there who are aware of the problem, but on the other side of the coin, there are just as many who are just not aware at all, who deny that there's a problem. And it, it is very puzzling to all of us how this, this, these two groups can coexist. And I don't believe that the group that's unaware of the problem, I do not believe that they are uncaring or don't want to heal people. I really believe that they honestly believe that there's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we've had you know, in the, in the early stages of the film, we, we screened the film for some prominent psychiatrists uh, in New York City. Um, and the first word after we turned it off was, that was horrible. And um, we really, I said, that's fair. That's fair that you guys think that, but tell me why. And then that, that group, uh, about six to eight people said, well, there are 20 films you could have made. And you made that just this one very simple film there. And I said, that's true too. There are 20 films, but this is such a big thing that has not been acknowledged. We needed to do 101. We needed to tell a really simple film about something real that was happening. Um, I said, but then, you know, of the 20 films, I threw the question back. I said, which film would you guys have made? And they said, oh, for sure, the film about uh, pharmaceutical corruption. Absolutely. Oh. That's the film. So I thought that was so interesting that that they were willing to take that part of our film. And yet uh, other parts of our film, they rejected. What, what do you think? Shift the blame or yeah, shifting or, the blame or shift like shift the blame away from the prescriber or shift away from the uncomfortable feeling that you have when you watch stories like Angie's and stories yeah. like your family member, because it makes me feel uh, oh man, very hopeless, very powerless. Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, I don't know, it's a hell what some of these yeah. people go through. And it's easy to say, let's just focus on something intellectual or let's, you know, let's go into the court system and, and look at the big pharma. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and another thing about how they reacted is that they looked at the film and they said, honestly, we think that every single subject in the film needed to be on medication, has a problem, needed to be on medication. And now that they're getting off, they're going to find that they needed the medication. And we were astounded at that because wow. we, we feel when you watch the film, you can't believe that these people were ever told they were mentally ill. So it's, it's really a subjective way of looking at the world and that original problem that you brought up about what is human suffering. Um, So, yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I I wonder how you reacted to that person's comment, Angie. Not good. Not good. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, because I mean, I was told that for 15 years that you're mentally ill, you're never going to finish school. You're never going to get married. You're going to have to take medication for the rest of your life. There's something wrong with you. And my whole life revolved around that story, going to psychiatrists, going to therapists, going on retreats to fix myself, trying all these self-help techniques, everything I could to fix myself. And I kept coming back to like, what is so, I don't understand. Why am I so bad? 
And nobody yeah. said it could be the meds. You're on too many or right. you need a harm reduction approach or they're, they're, the collective side effects are adding up to something bad, you know? So no, oh. I'm, when I hear that, I'm, it just really hurts me deeply because I just graduated with a master's in social work with a 4.0 and I was That's a policy amazing. scholar. And if That's I believe amazing. that, I mean, my potential would be in the trash can. You know, Thank God I didn't believe it, you know? Well, I remember actually uh, when I saw my first patient that was withdrawing from benzodiazepines and she walked into my office and she looked like she was wrapped in an electric fence and she was being zapped all the time. She was like a deer in the headlights. She couldn't think. I thought, is this like early onset Alzheimer's or what is wrong with her? And she uh, had, she was shaky and, and jittery and I couldn't put her in a box. I'd actually never encountered anybody that looked like they were being tortured in their own body. And I, I started to think, well, what personality disorder is this? Or how mentally ill is this woman? Because I didn't have a point of reference. And then hundreds of people kept knocking on my door, presenting with the same benzo withdrawal syndrome. And once they were tapered off, a year and a half later, they're normal and they're high functioning and they don't have anxiety and depression. And they are, you know, their, their family members uh, say that, you know, hey, she's back. Uh, this is who I married. Uh, this is the mother of my children. It, so, yeah, it's easy to judge what we don't understand, but that's just patient shaming. It's not helpful. It's not open-minded, Right. It's like people that used to come knock on my door and say, I think I'm mentally ill because I must have chronic Lyme disease and all the Lyme tests are negative or I'm hurting all the time because I have fibromyalgia and I have colleagues that would roll their eyes and say, oh, fibromyalgia, that's like a psychological problem. And I'm thinking, maybe not. Like, I don't know what I don't know, but why do we have to blame the patient, right? Yeah. Wow. So what about the pa- what about um patients? What's their response to the film been? Oh, Angie, well Angie can tell you more than I can. But well, we both did in the beginning before COVID um person and you know real life re- real uh screenings with um r- real life audiences. It t- it morphed into virtual screenings. But when we were in those screenings, there would people would stand up and bear their souls and say, I am so grateful because somebody is telling my story. And no, before this, nobody had been telling my story. And thank you so much for making the film. Um, I'm very, very grateful. Um, and, um, and also, in addition, I should tell you that some people have stood up and said, you know, my meds really helped me. And, mm-hmm. um, and they really have helped me. So I want you to know that. But in spite of that, I think what you're doing is really important because there is overprescribing. And I now understand and can see they don't help everybody. So people That's have been cool. amazingly generous. Um, we've had very few. Um, uh, well, Angie, is, Angie, you, you join in with me on how people respond. I think it's been mainly positive, but um, yeah, I mean, We've, we've done audiences that range from, you know, patient groups to therapists to a few prescribers, um, college and, colleges and universities. By, by and large, the patient groups are very upset, but it's like a mixture of anger. Like they've known about this for a long time. And why is this not like mainstream news? 
and a mix between val- and validation. Like, oh my God, you're telling my story. Exactly what Lynn said. But I want to bring attention to, I'll never forget this. Like one of our in-person screenings we had in the same row, there was an adolescent psychiatrist, a professor at UConn who teaches residents, a um, person actively withdrawing from Adderall whose doctor just cut him off the week before, mm-hmm. and a lawyer who defends people uh, when they have civil commitments and uh, assisted outpatient therapy or treatment. And this patient was explaining, like, he wouldn't refill it. He just said, no, that's it. And he's crying and sweating and shaking. Like, uh, and he's like, I was on a really low dose and I don't understand what's happening to me. And I can't find another doctor to prescribe it again and to help me taper off. Uh, and you can see, yeah. And you could see in the adolescent psychiatrist, the uncomfortableness with that. Like there's a patient sitting here and there's a room full of people witnessing this yes. and where else in the world, this is what struck me the most is where else in the world our patients listen to in this kind of space where like that power dynamic of medical authority and patient is even, we all just watch the film together and we're all sitting together and you How can't wonderful. run away How and you wonderful. have to sit and, and witness what's happening here. Right. And you know, the adolescent psychiatrist wasn't fully on board. He said, you know, parents come to me and they want their kids on meds. Mm-hmm. And what am I supposed to do? I talk to them about the informed consent. I tell them, you know, we don't know how this will go with your son. It could create, you know, problems, whatever. And they still want it. And I have to give it to them. That's my job, you know, but it felt like at least he let it in just a little bit. Like there's someone in front of you suffering and the whole room is witnessing this. You can't really deny it. You know? Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And and people do sometimes want magic bullets. I have people knocking on my doors saying, I want an antidepressant. And I'll say, well, have you done any therapy in the past? Oh, yeah, I've done therapy. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, who did you do it with? Maybe you had the wrong person. Um, yeah. How about exercise? Uh, uh, exercise has never worked for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hmm. how about manualized cognitive behavioral therapy? No, no. Look, are you going to prescribe yeah. me the antidepressant or do or I not. need to go somewhere else? Yeah, uh, looking for magic bullets. But I love the fact uh, that your film has validated the suffering that's been felt to be invisible by, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people in the country, if not millions around the world. Millions, yeah. And I mean, we even have we even have patients that binge watch all of our interviews and all of our panels, uh, and they can't wait until the next episode comes out because they just. It's like therapy to them. They see people talking about this openly. Even your interview, Trish, mm-hmm. with um, everyone, they they come back and say, oh, my God, I keep watching this over and over because she understands. She listens to her patients. She understands this. You know, why can't they? And they see your heart. They it's so heart. sad, isn't it? it that is. It's, it's really sad. Like when sometimes people who are uh, trying to get help getting off benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin call me up. And if I call them back, they go, thank you for calling me. Well, that's just a sad statement, right? I mean, yeah. of course, I'm going to call you back. It might take me a couple of days, but who isn't calling you back, right? Now, yeah. we've got about uh, four minutes till break. Let me ask you, did you want to say something about Yale, Lynn? Well, it was this question about how has the film been received? We had, there is a wonderful doctor, a, a psychiatrist at Yale um, who loved the film and he's been on panels and he did, did a, get the film into grand rounds at Yale. Um, we, we hit, we had to promise we, we could, we were not allowed to be part of it because um they wanted privacy in their discussion about the, the film, which uh, we, we understood. Um, and so I'm not really allowed to, he wasn't allowed to tell me what the discussion was about. And, but he said, I can tell you one thing for sure. Uh, you know, the time that was 
allotted to discussion was like double, triple what normal discussions are. So it got the doctors and residents talking, which that's all. That's the first thing we want to do is just get it, get people talking about it, uh, whether they agree or not with the film's premise. Just it's it, it's meant to be talked about. And then the next thing I do think that um, he hinted that there was a sort of outcry that perhaps the film was not fair to psychiatry in general. And hmm. I understand, I understand the sensitivity of the profession, um, and. I think the feeling was, you know, here at Yale, we, we aren't, we're not like that. We don't treat patients that way. But then after I thought about it for a few days, my thinking is, but don't you guys at Yale want to know how treat, how people across the country are, be tre- are being treated like this? These are very real stories that happened and there are times a thousand isn't it important? It may not happen at Yale, but it does happen in our country. And if we don't talk about it, we're not going to find out about it. So um, that that was Yale. But I also wanted to do I have time to talk about um, there. There is a wonderful yes. doctor, Aftab, who um, he wrote us. Uh, he showed it to his residents. He wrote a review for us. And I'm just going to he talked about. Um, having seen the film, the conversation is no longer in the hands of psychiatrists. This is why it's so important. It has moved into the community, this conversation. The Pandora's box is open. Many individuals have lost trust in the medical system. They have lost trust in organized psychiatry. They've lost faith in the ability of psychiatric diagnoses and medications to help them. These individuals are taking ownership of their distress and making sense of it in ways that speak to them with more authenticity. So he goes on to say that organized psychiatry has a choice. And I think that choice means that you can't be defensive or refuse to talk about it or refuse to acknowledge it. I think you need to talk about it. Nobody is saying that all psychiatry is bad. It's saying, let us make room for these other realities. And, um, that's what I hope. I don't want everyone to agree with the film. What point would what point would there be? But I want. I do feel it needs to be talked about. And there, like you, Trish, doctors like you, you're curious. You're open minded. You listen to your patients. Yes, that is. Yeah, they, you know, Lynn, uh, I, I love that. Uh, he sounds very open minded. And if the only thing that this film has done is validate the suffering of those who suffer silently, who have who feel invisible and not listened to, or get people talking about it, and psychiatrists at least opening themselves up to the idea that something I'm doing might be hurting somebody, yeah. or maybe I need to learn a new skill, like how to deprescribe benzos safely and effectively. And maybe because I'm a medical uh, doctor, uh, if not me, then who? Yeah. And even if you haven't prescribed benzos, learn how to help these people because there are hordes of them searching the country for medical help to safely deprescribe, not only uh, benzodiazepines and Z drugs, but also antidepressants. Yeah. Now, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. And today, our guests are uh, Lynn Cunningham and uh, uh, Angie Peacock. And after the break, uh, we will listen to Angie's uh, story and hear uh, some words to people still suffering from uh, psychiatric medications. Thank you. 
Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to deprescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a deprescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you, or someone you love, struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. And we're back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. We are sitting with uh, the director of Medicating Normal, uh, Lynn Cunningham, and we're sitting with Angie Peacock, uh, one of the subjects in the film. Today, we're talking about um, uh, psychiatric medications and the harm uh, that can possibly ensue. And Lynn, I think you had a question for me. I did, Dr. Halligan. So it's so, in the course of making the film, we came across all sorts of combinations. Um, something called polypharmacy came up so much because one drug often led to another, which led to another. And, um, you know, uh, anti in the screenings, of, we have come across and with friends in the world and uh, this idea that um, anti SSRIs also. Uh, can cause dependency and uh, terrible, terrible withdrawal. And uh, it, it was not as the benzo uh, problems with benzos were more readily acknowledged uh, by mainstream medicine and less so the SSRI. So I just I wanted to ask you what you think, what your experience has been um, on that. It's a great question. So the party line used to be that 20% of people on antidepressants would become dependent and experience withdrawal, but we were told that the withdrawal would last one or two weeks and it would be pretty mild and would go away. There's a good review article in the, I think it's um, Addictive Behavior Journal. It's a peer-reviewed journal in uh, 2019. And what it shows, they did uh, uh basically uh, reviewed many studies, and they found that 56% of people who were on long-term antidepressants experienced a withdrawal syndrome, and 46% of those patients who had a withdrawal syndrome reported their withdrawal symptoms to be severe, a severe burden. So, and the 
uh, they weren't just one to two weeks, these withdrawal syndromes. Uh, the average one was months long, and some lasted up to 79 weeks. That's a year and a half. And we're not talking about mild symptoms if 46% of people called this the symptoms uh, severe. And the symptoms that they reported were insomnia and feeling like they were having electrical brain zaps at the back of their head, the room spinning around, balance problems, vertigo, uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, appetite loss, uh, irritability off the charts. So these are life-disrupting withdrawal syndromes. And the worst withdrawal seems to be with Paxil among the SSRIs. Uh, and then among the SNRIs, uh, Effexor and Cymbalta also. Uh, Prozac's probably the least likely antidepressant to give a withdrawal syndrome just because it has such a, a long half-life. Yeah. But we weren't taught about this in med school. So yeah. it, I think well, doctors it, just need to be aware. Um, I mean, I have two college-aged kids, and the report, the, what, what is upsetting about this is so many uh, college-aged kids are, you know, having the normal response to stress, to heartbreak, to uh, all of this, and they go down to the mental health center, and they are given um, a prescription for an antidepressant. And I just, uh, without this warning, and uh, I just, again, I think, I hope that our film can get people talking about this. There was a study in Britain uh, concerning people on antidepressants, and it showed that only less than a third of them actually saw a therapist. So again, the culture that wants an instant quick fix and is seeking a magic bullet, believing that they can solve you know, human problems of worry and anxiety and sadness, grief, loss with a magic pill. Thank you. That's you're, you're, a great question. Now, um, Angie, I'm going to turn the mic over to you and ask you to comment about the severity of withdrawal and how many different medications uh, you were withdrawing from over the years. And what does withdrawal feel like? And how long did yours last? Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. It's uh, a huge question. I think I'll have to back it up because in the film, you know, I say that I was prescribed 17 at the same time. And that was in 2006. And what happened was, um, and it was a mix between a civilian psychiatrist and the VA psychiatrist. So it was both systems kind of signing off that that was okay. Um, and I think I was so impaired at the time, I didn't even have the ability to know there was anything wrong with that which is really scary thinking back on that, you know, but um, so I, at that time I'd met a psychiatrist. I got a new one at the VA and he said, I'm a psychiatrist who doesn't believe in psychiatry. And he took me off of 10 of them in the hospital in a detox overnight. Oh, wow. Not appropriate. I mean, but you know, and, and at that time, you know, I hallucinated in the hospital. It was really scary. Uh, he just said, you'll be fine in a couple of days, like calm down. It's fine. But you know, who knows? the impact of that, because I was also on other medicine at the same time, you know, right, uh, was left on a few. So then um, over the course of the next 10 years, I slowly tapered each one, you know, sometimes it was in 90 days, sometimes it was 30 days, it was an antipsychotic here, it was, you know, I would get off of a few, and then they would put me back on something. Um, one of the times that I'll never forget was I went to an inpatient uh, PTSD treatment center at the VA in Los Angeles. And I was there for four months and I was doing all this trauma therapy and I was crying a lot. And they said, well, we need to put you on Geodon because you're too tearful. Isn't that and, nuts in a trauma looking, therapy? Yes. And now looking back on that now, I'm like, that's what I was needing. My body needed to do that. Like I needed to release what was happening and what needed I had to had cry. A, yeah. I needed to cry. I didn't want it to be, you know, 
medicated. But again, when you're on so many medications and you're listening to this uh, doctor telling you this is what you need, I, you know, I just trusted. So anyway, um, so then my last three drugs I tapered were uh, Effexor. I couldn't get off of it. They bridged me to Cymbalta. I tapered Cymbalta with the bead method that you see in the film where I licked my finger every morning and counted every little tiny bead for two and a half years to get off of Cymbalta. What happened was my doctor told me to skip a day, which doctors tell patients this all the time. I know. Find them in our lay community and we have to tell them, no, that's not the right way to do it. But uh, when I skipped a dose, I was in the emergency room within 12 hours. My breathing and my heartbeat were completely out of sync. Like it was like my nervous system was not working correctly. Um, anyway, Sim- so then Cymbalta is a nightmare to get off of. Cymbalta did that to me two and yeah. a half years. And then wow. I saved the benzo for last. I didn't know any different. Right. Um, and then my last drug I tapered was Ativan. I was on a taper following my VA doctor for about two and a half, two years or so. Mm. You know, every month I would cut, I started at a three milligram dose per day. I would cut 0.25 oh. every month. And then he would just say like, when the anxiety, you know, when you feel stable, make the next cut. And I just continued to follow that. And then when I got to down to one milligram, I started experiencing, I guess, what was intradose withdrawal, a tolerance withdrawal, symptoms started showing up. I was having increasing anxiety, agitation. Uh, I remember it started with like intrusive thoughts that morphed into suicidal thoughts. And then it morphed into like these urges to kill myself, which I had never heard of. And I had a psychology degree and nobody ever said there's like these, you know, uh, I knew something was wrong, but I still didn't know it was the meds. I thought it was me, you know, because my doctor didn't recognize it as withdrawal. I never learned about withdrawal. I never heard of this, even with a psychology degree, even with all these retreats I went to and therapists I went to for all these years, I didn't know there was such a thing. So I believe them and, you know, they said, this is agitated depression. We want to put you on lithium. And I was like, no, I don't, I'm trying to get off of this. I want to see who I am beneath this. I want to know what's my baseline. Of course. So, um, and it was the benzodiazepine withdrawal, raising the anxiety, which then raised any kind of OCD tendencies you had. So intrusive distress of distressing thoughts about the uh, suicide. I never had it, but I never had any OCD, anything like that. I believe like new. I have, I have two patients right now going through exactly the same picture I and it's, it. It, and they're not in agitated depression. It's benzodiazepine withdrawal. Yes. So they failed to recognize that. So then what happened was I got extremely suicidal, the lower and lower I got. And then I just turned myself in the hospital and I was like, I literally said, this medication is obviously not working for me. I don't want to take it. So they obliged and cold turkeyed me off overnight. And I'll tell you four days later, the gates of hell opened and withdrawal I mean, and when I say gates of hell, I literally mean that my withdrawal was severe. I didn't shower standing up for two years. I felt like my body was a torture chamber. I, my thoughts gave me panic, just my thought. And they were, could be about like getting up from a chair. I would get a panic response from a thought, um, nerve pain in my entire body. The doctor said, I don't know what's causing this pain. I don't see anything on the MRI. Um, I, what else? warm sensations, numb sensations in my face, my hands would be numb, um, heart racing, dilated pupils. And again, like the, the worst part of it is that your body is in so much suffering. And when nobody believes you and your doctor doesn't want to read the journals that you're bringing them and your family doesn't believe you and you look normal, like I look normal and I sound normal. And I'm like, on the inside, I'm being tortured to death. And will somebody drug- please help me? 
And there's no, and then you realize there's no pill to fix this. There's no detox center to go to. Right. There's nobody that's going to take it away. And you just have to endure. And you trust these, these peer groups online who've been through it before you and are a couple years ahead of you. And they're telling you, is you going to be okay? And you just hang on. Don't right. kill yourself. Just hang on. It's the meds. It's chemicals are just haywire. Your body doesn't has to adjust. And if it wasn't for them, I'd be dead because the medical establishment sure did just leave me out to dry. You know, absolutely. No, it's how do you get through a day? Oh, it's counting the seconds. Like there was days that I literally counted my heartbeats, like just count. And, and you know, if you go, if you go to the emergency room, you know what they're going to do. They're going to give you two milligrams of Ativan and then you're back. I knew I, yeah, I knew that would happen. And you're I knew if I told the them, medication. I knew if I told, this is so scary. I mean, cause listen, I was trained as a social worker. So, you know, we, they train us to tell people to go get help when you have these experiences. But I knew deep down, if I go tell a doctor what I'm experiencing, what do you think is going to happen? He's going to put me on more meds and the state of my nervous system right. and brain right now, I will die. Like yes. there's no surviving this. I can't get any worse, you know? And you know, I'll have a patient come to my office and they'll tell me a story of I've been on Clonopin two milligrams for, you know, two years. And all of a sudden my anxiety is getting worse and I can't sleep and I'm really irritable and I can't focus on my memory's bad. And I'll say it's the Clonopin. And they'll cry because they thought that they were losing their mind. I felt exactly how it feels too. Yes. And yes. that's the worst part. I think that's what kept me in that cycle for so many years is that I would report, I feel more anxiety. Right. I feel more depressed. I feel right. numb. I don't feel anything. Why can't I feel gratitude? And they would say, that's your mental illness instead of that is your Cymbalta withdrawal. Or right. maybe we need to take you off of one of the medications because you're on too many and we don't know what's doing what. It was always here's another diagnosis. Here's another pill. And I didn't believe my own self. You know, right. I didn't, I learned to not believe. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't, I didn't know what was what, and I just trusted them. Well, that's what Nicole Lamberson said. She said, I've come from a family of physicians and I trust physicians. And I thought that the pills they were giving me would help me. And I, and you can't think clearly when you're in benzodiazepine no. or antidepressant withdrawal, no. you know, you're helpless and you're yeah. trusting somebody, please help me. That's a horrible, horrible story. Uh, what what do patients need? What in in you and what have you learned uh, through schooling, uh, getting your master's at uh, WashU? Oh, well, it was hard to it was hard to sit there and listen to the training these days, and I just kept thinking, oh my god, there's 273 brand new social workers that are about to hit the street, and not one of them knows about withdrawal. Not one of them knows when they're you know, and I noticed it because I, I trained as an outpatient therapist. So during my internship, I learned this, you know, just from listening to people, I was like, wait a minute, if I'm what I'm listening to, is this the person or is this a medication effect? Like, yes. what is them? And yeah. what is really their yeah. problem? Or, you know, not? Um, oh, I love that. I, so you separate the person from their symptoms. Yeah, like, like, if they're really upset, that tearfulness, is it that they're really that emotional or is it this uh, an effect of the antidepressant not yeah. getting in their system well, you know? Right. The other thing I noticed is um, I learned that people really just need, this is just in my internship, I learned that people have a valid reason for how they're feeling. It's not yeah. that just depression landed on them or anxiety, just a chemical imbalance, just poof, went into their brain. No, if you ask a patient or a client, like, what is going on in your life that makes you anxious or suicidal? They will tell you. Yeah. 
it's not a mystery, you know? Yeah. Why don't we go to the source, right? Yeah, Rather than just let's, let's treat the that. symptoms. Why yeah, don't we figure out what the, because maybe that person has a child with a drug problem, or maybe that person had a history of trauma, right? Yes. Yes. And, and, and that, that leads to the third thing I would say is that like people just really don't have someone that can be present for them and listen to them and not try to fix it or medicate it or tell them that they're wrong or that it's their problem and get over it. Just people have, we, we've lost community where like you talk to a pastor or you talk to the guy that sits on the porch down the street, you know, you are told to go to a professional, you need to get therapy, you need help. And I think that's part of the problem that keeps this going is that the mental health industry they have a stake in the game. They don't want to lose clients. You know what I mean? Like they want to be helpful, but so I don't know. I think um, it's just, we all need that humility to like, maybe we're doing things wrong and we just need to listen to people and give them space and give them alternatives, you know, and not medicate all this suffering. There's, there's things, there's no pill that's going to fix racism or, you know, city violence. When you witness a murder, a pill is not going to take that away. It's just Absolutely. not. And it's no. still there. I, that's what I learned is that even though I'm off medication, all my original trauma is still there. All my symptoms are symptoms, quote unquote, are still there. I still have all this work to do. It didn't do anything but kick the can down the road for me, you right. know? Right. And maybe it makes the physician feel better to give you a pill like he's done something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think physicians need to learn if they're going to help somebody, they need to learn who the best therapists in the community are, like who are the cognitive behavioral therapists that operate from a manual, they're they're, uh, experts in cognitive behavioral therapy, manualized therapy, who are the people that do trauma-focused therapies like EMDR, right? Or even uh, even that, can I push back on you? Please, yes. Okay, you may. something, sorry, I have to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm I'm (laughs) open, I'm open. I I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know I about PTSD, having had I it. I do. I'm an expert living with it. Yeah. I believe but, it. But no, uh, this is one thing I learned in, in school was that, yeah. you know, they, they encouraged us to, to learn ABT therapy, CBT, take prolonged exposure so that you know how to do that as a skill as a therapist. This is Wonderful. what I found. When you learn all that and it's all in, crammed in your head and you have yeah. attachment theory and CBT over here and EMDR over here, when you're sitting with a person and they're suffering, it's almost that that stuff can even cloud your judgment of like, what is the person really experiencing? Like it's giving you a package to understand maybe from a theoretical perspective, like what this person may be dealing with. But I think the human condition is really messy and that maybe there isn't a textbook answer. Like what would be different if when I experienced my trauma, if somebody told me, Angie, we just don't really understand trauma. We don't understand what affects your body, how it's going to have, you might not ever get over it. There's no easy answer and it's going to suck for a really long time. Instead of how would you have felt? Yeah. Yeah. How how would you have felt? Because it would have normalized. You would it would have normalized your uh, sadness and your grief and uh, the intrusive thoughts after the trauma you experienced. Right? You would have felt like, okay, of course I'm having these symptoms. I've just been through something horrific. Right. So I just yeah I just I think that we learn so much that it can get it can cloud like we're seeing that person through the CBT or through the EMDR as a, like a perspective, instead of like, just listen to the person and just be with them and let them be who they are. Don't try to fix it or rearrange it. Just, you know, just, I don't know. What were the qualities of the best therapist you ever had? That's it. Listening, just not trying to fix me, just listening, just being present. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, it doesn't even have to be a therapist. I've had like right now I'm at in Washington state with a bunch of veterans and this veteran yesterday just opened up to me. And of course I'm not going to share what he said, but like, 
Right. I was like, I'm not in a therapist role. I'm just his peer. And right. he just knows that I'm a person that can be present. Like I've, I've honed that own skill in myself and I didn't try to fix him. And he just poured his heart out to me, started crying. And I just let him, let him be who he is. You know, I didn't try to fix it or shut him down or tell him to go get a professional, you know, or you need to take a med for that. Like, no, just let this guy be who he is. And let it, you know. You know what I heard once, uh, I think it was Plato who said the best uh, healer is the one who has suffered the most. True. So I think you might be up for that award. Oh, thank you. I, ha- I can definitely, <laughs> I'm well, in the running. <laughs> well, I think it's wonderful because you've already walked through your own pain and suffering. So you're going to be able to sit with other people's pain and suffering and not try to shut it down or make no. them wrong because you can't, ha- you can't sit with them on their journey of pain. Yeah. Uh, even my own, even my own, I, I've experienced the death of my service dog, uh, 90 days ago. And oh, I, I was like, it was so intense though. I literally felt physically ill for days. Like, like I didn't even know that grief was that physical. You know, I learned a lesson in that. Mm-hmm. And I, and through that experience, you know, there was days I woke up and just hated the world. Like, I hate this place. I hate this world. I don't even want to be here anymore. But in the bottom of it, I was like, I also want to experience this. I don't, I want to feel this. I was robbed of that for so many years that I couldn't, you know, and, and so I was, I was hesitant to tell anybody how I was feeling, or I'd talk to friends that had lost pets and they helped me through it, but not like shut it down or close that emotion off or, you know, t- turn it off in any way. And you train service dogs, do you? No, I'm, tr- I'm training my next one to get the second one. Yeah. And did that help you uh, on your journey? Having a- yes. That dog, I'm telling you, because I, and a lot of, um, you know, people with psychiatric diagnosis are in my shoes, you know, we're on disability, we're isolated, we don't have a partner or children, you know, we're pretty, like, I was very secluded in my house for 15 years, that dog saved my life, he is the one that helps me get off the meds, you know, like I had another tool that, um, that I could trust a companion that unconditional love that we all need, you know, and that's an alternative to psychiatric drugs is an animal walking dogs at the pound, for God's sakes, like, there's so many things, you know, it, it's an attachment, right? And it's, yeah. it's soothing, it's emotionally very regulating, right? Yes. And if you're talking about yeah. coming off uh, psychiatric medications, you've got a disrupted, wounded central nervous system. So yeah, this would uh, be very healing, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and now I'll just wrap up with saying that, um, because I was on psychiatric drugs for so long, it it feels like I cannot regulate my own nervous system. Like it's completely haywire. When I walk into a store, I'm five years off of all medication, but you know, I suffer from protracted benzo damage. I don't even want to call it withdrawal anymore. It's not withdrawal. I'm off. Yes. But when, when I, when I walk injury. into a store, yeah, an injury. Mm-hmm. So when I walk into a store, it feels like a concert. Like everything is so overstimulating. It makes me dizzy. I don't, I lose my balance. So having a service dog next to me, it's like, I'm focusing on the dog. I'm uh, being grounded. And so I I hope that that's going to rewire my system with neuroplasticity, like learning to calm that down and to to figure out how to regulate myself because otherwise I would just avoid it, you know? So there's other tools that we can use, I think, you know? Now, what would you tell people? What message of hope do you have for anybody right now trying to come off psychiatric medications? I would say hang in there. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's harder than combat. I mean, I served in uh, Baghdad during the beginning of the war. It was harder than the military. It was harder than divorce. It was the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I'm still kind of traumatized from it. Mm -hmm. But hang on. It is is worth it to get to the other side. Um, Even if you're on and you can't get all the way off, because I didn't really want to come all the way off. It just so happened that way. 
even a harm reduction approach can, you know, if you're suffering from consequences that can improve your life. Uh, many people have had severe cases and come out of the other side and been fine and there's life to live and there's feelings come back and your will to live comes back and like you're wanting to do things. All of that comes back and the suffering slowly, slowly goes away. So just hang in there, hang on to your peers that have been through it. The people that are a little ahead of you will help you through. And you relied on the online communities, Benzo, Benzo Buddies? Yeah, Benzo Buddies, uh, Surviving Antidepressants. Um, everybody can go to our website. It's medicatingnormal.com. We have a resources tab and we have a tab called Withdrawal. If you go on the Withdrawal tab, it'll show you the Withdrawal Project, Intercompass Initiative, Surviving Antidepressants, Benzo Buddies. There's tons of group on Facebook. Some are better than others. Use discernment. Um, read as much as you can. And uh, really figure out what feels true to you, you know, before moving forward and get really educated on that before approaching a doctor about tapering. I love this. And so, I, I love to add in, Angie yeah. always says this too. If you are looking for a doctor, make sure your doctor is someone that will listen to you and consider your perspective. And um, if, if indeed you and he or she decide to, to start a drug ask about, well, is this going to be forever? And if not, which most people don't want that, do we know how I'm going to get off? I mean, ask the important questions that our film raises, I would say, is really important. And if that doctor doesn't, refuses to have that conversation, go look for another one. Right. Right, Angie? It's hard. Yeah. And sometimes I say, you know, just ask your doctor, what do you know about antidepressant withdrawal? Or what do you know about benzo withdrawal? And then don't say anything. Let them answer. Because if they tell you, oh, it's nothing, you can get mm -hmm. off in two weeks, run. Mm -hmm. run. If, they say, if they say, I'm into patient-centered, patient symptom-based tapers, we'll take as long as you need, that is the doctor to hang on to. There's not many out there. We get emails every day asking, begging to all the prescribers out there, this is a niche that is so needed. Um, please learn about deprescribing. There's some really good resources out there. Uh, again, you can check our website for that or email us. I could shoot you in the right direction, but we need prescribers. We need therapists that understand this, that are open-minded and, and can support these people that are coming off. That's super helpful. I've uh, told people coming out of med school, don't prescribe benzodiazepines and don't prescribe Z drugs like Ambien, Linessa, Sonata. Just don't do it. And don't cover people who do prescribe them. If you join a practice, just say from day one, I don't cover these drugs. Yeah. Just don't get started. And then learn how to deprescribe safely and effectively and, and let them be patient-led tapers. And Heather Ashton, the Ashton Manual, made it so easy. I love what you said, Lynn. Find a doctor who will listen to you. Take the Ashton Manual with with you and say, Hey, I'm on, you know, a milligram of Xanax a day. And Heather Ashton says that's 20 milligrams of Valium. Here's her chart on how to taper me from 20 milligrams a day of Valium down. I'm sorry, but if you're a physician, that's a lovely patient to have. I've just been given the treatment plan right now. I've just been notified. We've got one minute left. Any parting words or have you said everything that you wanted to say? I just want to say thank you for being so understanding and learning about this issue and helping people off. I know you probably have patients in the queue that are begging to get into your practice and um, you're just, oh. you can't understand the, the amount of validation that you, you are giving our community is just huge. Well, you're more than welcome. You deserve it. You're the, you're the expert on you and I'm arrogant if I think I know you 
after, you know, on a couple of hours of meeting you better than you know yourself. That's enraging, isn't it? Yeah. And I loved your message, Angie. That was very powerful. Sit and just listen to the patient. Just be with him. Don't try to, you know, don't try to shut him down or make him wrong. Give him another psychiatric diagnosis. Well, this has been wonderful, ladies. I can't thank you enough. Two real life heroes, Lynn Cunningham and Angie Peacock from the award-winning 2020 documentary, Medicating Normal. Please see it. And where do they go to see it, Lynn? Come to our website, medicatingnormal.com, and we have a list of upcoming screenings. Uh, we also are distributing educationally through Good Docs or distributing internationally through Sideways Films. And we will be having a PBS run in the fall or, or early next year. And we're very excited and we'll publicize that and let everyone know about that too. And then eventually it will be for sale online. So I'm really excited about that. It's a work of art. And it gives Thank voice you. to the millions of people around the world who have been suffering in silence for uh, decades. So thank you both uh, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.